0: Okay. Great. All right. We're going to kick off. Welcome everybody. Good morning. If you're in this time zone and I'm based in LA, so it's reasonably early for me. We, this is, I don't know, I can't remember which, which edition of our speaker series we're up to now. It's probably like number six or seven. And we had some great conversations with people like Ben and Jerry's and Dr. Bronner's. And this time I'm really excited because it's like a different view of sustainability that is through the prism of the financial system from somebody who is really, you know, has a a very uh, interesting perspective on that system. And so I'm happy to introduce Jackie Cook. And I've had a couple of occasions to speak to her. And so I know she's a really interesting person. But I will recap her bio just a little bit. So Jackie's from South Africa, and she went to Nelson Mandela Metropolitan University. And then Rhodes University was a Rhodes Scholar which I don't think has anything to do with having gone to Rhodes University. but And so I went to say Business School at Oxford and it was a really interesting combination of like research, kind of academic focus on what's going on with respect to corporate governance, entrepreneurship, because she founded and ran her own uh, business, basically um, doing what I'm gonna talk about in a second, and then being Director of Investment Stewardship Research at Morningstar. And so all of that is about basically making sure that the financial system exercises its governance of corporations because because asset managers own like huge shares in corporations and I used to be one of those they don't always look out for the initiatives that that corporation that board and the and the governance is is trying to exert on the company's sustainability and it ranges everything from environmental to social justice issues but Jackie has had a career in monitoring those big asset managers and doing research into whether they are really using their their extensive influence to have a role to play in uh, the sustainability of corporations, and so um, really happy to have her here today to talk about that, and I hope I did that justice, Jackie. I have to say that as a former PM, you know, who used to manage money, like. I could have used some of that monitoring. I will say mea culpa, like, like that's not where my head was. And so, so I'm just gonna put that out there. But anyway, I'm gonna hand it over to our co-host, Ben uh, Hiller NZ, Ayub, and Z uh, and they can introduce themselves and start.
1: Hi everyone, my name is Ben, and I'm currently a second year undergraduate at the University of Cambridge. So the degree that I'm studying at the moment is called Land Economy, which is a mix of economics, law and the environment. And I'm originally from the south of the UK.
2: Hello, everybody. My name is Z. I'm a senior at the University of Michigan, studying business administration and minoring in entrepreneurship and public health. My experience in terms of ESG and sustainable finance began last summer when I interned at J.P. Morgan, specifically covering hedge fund due diligence and then ESG metrics within that. And upon graduation, I'm going back to J.P. Morgan, particularly focused in ESG portfolios. So. Thank you so much, everyone, for being here. And thank you so much, Jackie. We appreciate you.
0: And Z, before you go launch into the question, I just want to say, Emily, just please introduce yourself as well. like you don't mind.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I'm Emily Weinstein. I'm a graduate student for Environmental Studies at the University of Southern California. And I'm kind of like the little organizer of the Speaker Series event. And we're happy to have you. So Let's get the event started. Great. Well, I'll start things off. First off, congratulations on your achievement of being a Rhodes Scholar. It's definitely very renowned. So that's also inspiring. At the time you were studying economics and management at Oxford um, as a Rhodes Scholar. How did you find yourself in a career of sustainability and how did that transition occur?
3: So actually the transition to sustainability, sustainable business, you know, thinking about sustainable business has happened so rapidly. uh, And I'd say over the last 10 years that it wasn't a big part of what I studied at Oxford. You know, interestingly now, it's, you know, probably an essential part of every business degree now, <clears throat> but at the time it really wasn't, wasn't, it, it would have been an add on. And my, my third year thesis actually looked at a social venture, it, it was a internship at looking at a, a venture capital company that was doing social, social venture funding. So I I managed to put a bit of sustainability into my degree, but it wasn't there by default. And I think that's one of the, you know, one way of measuring just how far we've come over the last, you know, 20, 25 years. Yeah. And, and I mean, but the, the, the fundamentals are essential, you know, so understanding the fundamentals, that's really essential, you know, understanding how, you know how sustainability can can can, can be introduced into financial decision making understand, understanding how finan- how sustainability plays out across an economy That's really, you need the basics of economics, finance, management to be able to get that.
2: With that being said, do you believe there are any particular majors that students should be pursuing to break into a career, focus on sustainability, whether that be in finance or towards a sustainable economy? So I
3: suspect now that that degrees are going to be incorporating sustainability courses or sustainable, sustainable finance. And so it may not be necessary to thinking specifically about a major you know there are majors that are probably going to definitely take you down this path environmental engineering or i I, I, actually i'm battling to think of subjects off the top of my head but you know i think it's more what you do with your what you do with your education than specifically designing your education towards sustainable finance or sustainable perfect
1: so moving kind of now through your career into the the work you undertook with with funds votes research I'd like to ask you if, if you were apprehensive at all of it being acquired by such a large firm with the fear that you could possibly lose some control or emphasis on sustainability and framing this for students who are looking for careers in sustainability. Can you share the pros and cons of starting a career in a small firm versus a large firm as you've had experiences in both?
3: Yeah, that's a really good question. So there's, you know, how you build your business and then there's your exit strategy. So, you know, as an entrepreneur, you want to be thinking about, you know, what are your options down the road? Are you going to grow this business into, you know, uh, how are you, you know, are you going to see this business through its growth to to becoming a, a really big business? Are you looking at an exit strategy closer on the horizon? And then if so, you know, what are going to be the conditions of your exit? So if you've built a a social business, you're going to want to be very careful about who acquires your business and under what circumstances. So that was something I was really mindful of. You know, I'd worked hard on a business for 11 years and I'd been very mindful of who I was serving, you know, what values I was serving, you know, how this fit into the big picture of where I felt finance should be going and business should be going and what sort of tools and data finance and business needed for, you know, to move the dial on important issues like climate change and inequality. And so at the end of it all, you know, what really started growing my business was mainstream interest. So mainstream interest from from intermediaries serving boards or serving investors. And that mainstream interest was what helped me grow the business, but it wasn't the initial inspiration that I had for the business, which was serving investor advocacy groups that were filing shareholder resolutions on climate change and, and diversity and equal pay and things like that. So... I was really inspired by serving those groups, helping them with their campaigns and supporting their campaigns. But it was these these large contracts that helped me grow the business. <clears throat> and so when it became apparent that this business was an attractive acquisition to large mainstream groups, uh, obviously like you know, like a lot of entrepreneurs looking at an exit, I worked with a financial um, advisor who was or an investment banker who was helping me, you know shop the company around and and in the end, I had a few different options, but some of them I actually ruled out on, on the grounds that I felt like this the, the business was not going to grow as if, if the the values that I'd started the business with were not going to be continue to evolve within some of the potential acquirers. and Morningstar was a clear you know, to me, it was very clear how the values were going to evolve and how, you know, I, w- I was going to have, a, you know, the data and, and what I, the research that I was doing was going to get a much bigger platform. So it was a strategic consideration for me when I when I made the decision to to be acquired by Morningstar.
1: Thank you for that. That's really interesting to hear how that was a, a big driving force as to who you would let acquire.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And as it happens, it's worked out really well because in actual fact, you know, the platform has... has really amplified the original work that FunVotes was doing, plus combining it with the resources that Morningstar, you know, already had, has, you know, made for a more powerful application of the original data.
2: Thank you so much for sharing that. To dive even further about FunVotes research, how did you build the legitimacy of the company to become an international provider of voting data? And even similarly, did you take anything you've learned in that experience and apply it to your role at Morningstar in terms of harnessing um, that sentiment and credibility amongst those who read um, your reviews or your ratings.
3: That's a great question, Z. So, building credibility—it's very difficult for a small business. It's—it's it's very difficult to achieve reach and recognition. And I was working with a very small group of like-minded organizations that, you know, in the beginning. It, investor advocacy if you can believe it investor advocacy 15 years ago was a very niche and and off-center undertaking by investors who cared and these investors who cared were often quite sidelined in the m- sort of mainstream investor spectrum of investors even you know over the over time with the in, as public pension funds like new york state common retirement fund and and calpers and calsters from california you know as, and there are plenty of examples of public pension funds in the UK that have become increasingly active on social and environmental issues, filing shareholder resolutions and, and challenging companies, engaging with companies. But really in the beginning, it was a very small group of investors centered around advocacy groups like Ceres and As You So. And, and as the movement has grown, um, it. And and so, getting back to your question of how do you establish legitimacy. So, one way of establishing legitimacy is offering a public good. So, I mean, it's very difficult as a small business. You are very resource constrained, but if you can offer what you do on a public platform, you get a broader recognition. So, you know, if you're able to offer something to the you know, to the world, <laughs> a report, some data, a, a rating or ranking, then it does raise your recognition. And as the this group of investor advocates investor advocates grew in their influence, I was, you know, I, and in fact, I was partly lucky in this. I was able to, you know, grow in the kind of glow of what they were able to achieve. So sometimes it's luck, but you're taking deliberate steps like reaching out, offering something for free, making connections, attending conferences. And one of the things that are really, and small businesses have the opportunity to do this, is you work closely with your clients. So you, you're not, you're, you know, it's a big business, your clients come to you and you say, okay, well, here's the menu of, of products that we offer, you know, if you want, you know, we'll give you a price depending on what you want to take, whereas as a small business, you work with your client to develop something. So you, you try and really understand what the client's use case is. And that re, and that makes you actually able to, in some ways, <clears throat> get ahead of big businesses when it comes to finding innovative solutions. And so the power of being a small and innovative business leading the way with your products and your um, business strategy is not to be underestimated. Did I cover all of your questions? Because I felt like there was more to your questions.
2: That did cover most of the questions, but I would love to follow up if you can give a specific example of investor advocacy and climate change or racial justice. And within that, I guess, how you kind of establish the credibility in evaluating that. I think a lot of what we do here at Boys, we are reviewing these companies and I'm trying to give look for these precise examples in which they can back our arguments or back the ratings that we give. So, can you give a specific example in which that occurred within your career and what you found to be the most successful? I think that would really help. Right, right.
3: So, so let's think you know, so from early on, I've worked with Ceres. So, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Ceres, but they're an, an investor advocacy group, a sustainability group. They've been around for quite a while now. And They've made the business case for addressing climate risk, you know, they're perhaps, they're one of the pioneers of the business case for addressing climate risk, and they're, you know, co-conveners of the Climate Action 100 Plus now, and they're very influential. But working with them from the beginning, we started profiling asset managers on how they vote on climate-related shareholder resolutions so shareholders and just to step back so that i'm not losing anybody in in you know when i talk about climate related shareholder resolutions <laughs> Share, so every year companies hold shareholder meetings annual shareholder meetings and it, you know what comes up for vote at these shareholder meetings is usually you know voting on the nominees for the board of directors voting perhaps to approve the compensation practices of the company voting on a few other housekeeping issues And at large companies, there's often a resolution or two or three um, on the ballot filed by a shareholder, one of the shareholders of the company, as long as they meet certain standards, like, you know, they've got a a certain threshold of, uh, they own a certain threshold of shares, and they've been a shareholder for a period of time, so they can file a resolution with the company asking the company for something. And typically, that's for greater transparency into how they're handling one or other of their environmental, social or governance factors that impact the business. Shareholders have been filing shareholder resolutions at some of the large oil and gas and energy companies for many years now. Since I've been looking at corporate proxy ballots back in 2003, 2004, asking companies to disclose more about how climate is going to impact the business of the company, and whether the company is taking any steps to address these risks. So are they measuring their carbon footprint? Are they planning for a low-carbon scenario, et cetera? And over the years with Series, I tracked how the largest asset managers like BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street and BNY Mellon and T. Rowe Price and J.P. Morgan, how all of these um, large asset managers voted on these climate resolutions. And from, you know, we've been able to track the the growth in support for these climate resolutions over time. And of course, how these large asset managers vote on these resolutions, definitely, as Diego said in the beginning, it really does have a big difference on the vote outcome and therefore on the practices of the company. And so I would say, and this series is, series always produced this survey as, as a kind of a free report. For the investment community to track and it became more and more interesting and over the years i saw the media picking it up more and more you know so that in the end it was getting picked up and it still is i mean obviously now whenever we talk about climate risk and what investors are doing about climate risk it gets picked up by all the major financial media outlets but in the beginning you know it was just the odd story and but you know persistence over the over the years has created has shone a light on how asset managers exercise their proxy voting with respect to specific issues and in this case I'm talking about climate risk to move the dial to actually get companies to commit to to at least providing transparency which is really the very first and most important step and then you know setting goals and and working towards those goals
1: that's incredible to hear about how you've been able to see the progression of these issues being part of the mainstream and I'd just like to, to follow this up with that I often hear that engagement and in, in the use of proxy votes can be used as a reason for these large fund managers not to divest from some of the most polluting companies and how fund managers can often argue that you need to have almost a seat at the table to internally foster change within the companies that they invest in. And this is also an argument that some universities may, may take to resist kind of divestment campaigns that a lot of students watching this now may be involved in. So my question is, at, at, at what point do investors in universities need to just simply cut ties with, with companies rather than struggling with engagement and using proxy vote?
3: Wow, that's a great question. So, and actually I know Cambridge University, and so this is probably why you're asking me the question, has just made that decision to dive on the basis of a a really thorough report that looked at the divestment versus engagement efficacy and decided that, you know, as Cambridge University, we're going to have bigger impact divesting. And divesting is also, you know, one way of protecting your portfolio from the risks, the very real risks, fossil fuel economy. So divestment versus engagement, you know, so I know, it does seem like a dichotomy because once you've divest, you can't engage, you know, you don't have a seat at the table, but I actually see them as complementary strategies, or at least the divestment, the, the momentum that the divestment movement has had has created a, a credible threat to, for investors that are prepared to engage. So investors that are prepared to engage are now able to point to this divestment movement and say, you know what, there are a lot of investors who are concerned about I'm at risk, some of them are our and if you're an asset manager, you can say some of them are our clients. You know, they you, we are facing uh, increasing pressure to divest, to reduce our stake, even and so. You know, divestment doesn't have to be a, an all or nothing, it could be we reduce our stake, we keep our place at the table, but we reduce our stake. And so, let's talk about what you're doing to turn your business around, let's talk about what you're doing to move away from fossil fuel extractive model towards a you know, renewable energy model. So I see the two as complementary strategies and I you know when, when Cambridge makes the statement that it's divesting from fossil fuels, it's a very loud statement to the investment world. So I, I don't actually take the position that you know divestment is antithetical to engagement. In Canada, for instance, Share—if you're familiar with the um, advocacy group Shareholder Association for Research and Education—they're based here in Vancouver, and I've worked, done work with them over the years. A really active investor organisation, and they have recently convened Canadian universities and endowments to collectively engage. You know, so this collective engagement is a very powerful strategy for achieving change. And I think when you've got a more or less homogenous set of investors you know they've got similar time horizons they've got similar interests they're facing similar pressures i think it it could make for a very powerful a very powerful front in engaging with companies and you know canada definitely has has its it, canadian businesses are fairly entrenched in the fossil fuel what's the word economy canada has a lot of work to do to to what's canada has a lot of work to do to move away from this fossil fuel um, powered economy. And so having a constituency like universities and endowments coming together to engage as a collectivity, I think will be a very powerful model.
1: Thank you very much. And we've just got a, a question that one of the audience would like to ask. And it was what is kind of the, the reason that asset managers would give, let's say, a student advocacy group or one of their clients? What reasoning would they give them when they're arguing against participating in these proxy votings and in, in, in transparency votes? And how would you combat this?
3: Yes, because we have heard those <laughs> arguments and I think those arguments are starting to look weaker and weaker. So over the years, we've heard arguments and and we've heard arguments from large asset managers that if you vote against management, you erode the quality of the relationship that you have with the company and that weakens your position when you engage with a company. Well, I don't think that argument holds a lot of water because if you are BlackRock, for instance, you can go knocking on anybody's door and that door is probably going to open. So If you want to engage with your investing companies, you're probably always going to have a door, you're probably always going to have a seat at the table, regardless of whether you vote against management on, which is to say you support a shareholder resolution that management would oppose, or you vote against the board members for um, not taking the necessary actions to avoid climate risk. So, I think the, I think that you, if you think about this in terms of game theory, and many people on this call are probably familiar with game theory, you know, if you want to have a credible commitment to voting against management, you actually have to do so sometimes. Because if you go on year after year saying, uh, you know, we're going to exercise our votes if you don't engage in good faith or, or you know, we, we're, we're going to engage regardless of whether you do any, you know, we're not going to vote against you, but we would like to continue to have a conversation about what you're doing to change there's really no incentive on the part of the company to make any um, immediate or drastic changes. You know, they can string you along. And I think some of the largest asset managers, and BlackRock's a good example, have come to the point now where they realize that they really do need to exercise their proxy votes. And and that was clear enough in in Larry Fink's letter to CEOs, which is one of the important kind of events on on the ESG investing calendar. In January, his letter was quite clear that they're going to be taking a, a, a more proactive approach in voting proxies, uh, supporting shareholder resolutions. So I think this is really, you know, that's how I see that that argument. I know that argument has prevailed for, for a long time, but it certainly hasn't got us very, if we look at the, if you look at where we are in relation to the climate crisis, we need to be a whole lot further forward. So investors haven't done enough to get us where we need to be. And so they haven't used all the tools in the toolbox. And now you need to start pulling out some of the some of the more influential strategies. Just to add to that, I'd say, you know, really influential strategy, and this is a strategy that some of the large asset managers have been looking at with respect to diversity, is voting against board members. If, for instance, the board is, is not diverse enough. And I think that's very powerful because one of the ways to catch the attention of board members is to threaten to vote against them. And to, you know, even if that doesn't end up causing them to, you know, fail to achieve a majority support, directors don't like to be, you know, in the lowest 10 percentile of directors supported. So, And, and so keeping keeping tabs on how strongly directors are supported in their nominations to boards, I think is a very powerful inducement. And as more and more large asset managers indicate that they're going to be incorporating considerations of environmental and social governance into how they vote on board members or even on pay, you know, does your pay package or does how the board does the pay structure for senior executives, which is, you know, something over which boards have oversight, does that incorporate sustainability metrics? If not, you know, then you really need to consider voting against the the pay practices.
2: Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think it's a very interesting topic about how going back to divesting and engagement, how those both fall under activism. And specifically, you wrote an article recently documenting Larry Fink's of BlackRock's shareholder letters that he sends out that harness sentiment and awareness about sustainability, specifically climate change. Do you feel in terms of asset managers that may not be of the magnitude of a BlackRock per se, can still be effective in pushing ESG governance issues. And how can you differentiate between asset managers who engage in greenwashing or truly are dedicated and align themselves with governance issues as it relates to sustainability?
3: Great question. So I just want to recap so that I'm going to touch on all of this. So greenwashing, we want to, how do you protect greenwashing, okay? And then how do smaller asset managers have impact? Wonderful questions. Okay. How do smaller asset managers have impact? So, you don't have to be a BlackRock or a Vanguard or a State Street to have impact. And we've seen that some of the smaller asset managers that have a social or a, a social investing mandate, <coughs> excuse me, asset managers like Domini, Social Domini, Pax World Funds or Impacts, Parnassus, who are some of the others, Green Century, these asset managers have been Let's say punching above their weight for years, in that they've been filing shareholder resolutions, they've been mobilizing the investor case, they've been very vocal at kind of the institution building level. So they've been building the kinds of invest financial system institutions like the Climate Action 100 plus or these large regional networks of investors, even the UNPRI, you know. So these, these infrastructure or this infrastructure of sustainable investing support networks creates platforms from which larger investors can work. But by and large, the largest investors have not been (laughs) building these platforms. These platforms have been built by smaller investors and by investor advocacy groups. And so they've created the infrastructure now that all investors can use and leverage to, to influence business and to influence the financial system. So, and really to give a good example of how smaller investors can have a lot of impact. So filing shareholder resolutions, definitely, because that draws everybody's attention to an issue at a company that's well-researched, but collectively, collective engagements, I think is a very important, very powerful strategy. And so what we're seeing now on various themes, but perhaps most obviously on climate risk, we're seeing investors coming together to specifically to engage collectively. So, you know, because engagement is very costly. So for, an, for one investor to go and engage with all their investing companies to hold meetings with management and to go back if management are not very, you know, to, to, to hold multiple meetings if management is not moving quickly enough to keep tabs on these engagements, it's very resource intensive. And so, you know, for, for smaller asset managers, it, you, you really have to focus your efforts on a few engagements that can have a lot of impact. And so, if you can bring all of these investors together under an umbrella that has a, a shared engagement objective, and then you know share the engagement load, develop a common, develop a strategy um, together, share share data and research that's very valuable to investors as they engage with companies, that amplifies each individual investor's efforts. And it's not just climate. I mean, climate. The Climate Action 100 Plus Coalition now has reached 52 million in assets under management. And now has, you know, JP Morgan and BlackRock signed up last year and State Street signed up this year. So the biggest asset managers are now contributing their assets under management to the power of these engagements. And there's more, you know, these coalitions and I'll name a few others, the investors for opioid and pharmaceutical accountability and investors for human rights, you know, there's various of these coalitions that come together to share the load of piling shareholder resolutions or tracking engagements. <clears throat> but this is a very powerful movement. And I think, I think it's how, how these smaller investors can make their voices um, heard alongside the largest asset market.
2: Thank you very much for sharing that. I think that was very helpful, especially for um, people maybe in this room, particularly who might one day want to pursue a career Working for asset managers to kind of understand, I guess, the different either barriers or benefits or just structurally how the decision making is kind of institutionalized and specifically as it pertains to sustainability. So thank you for sharing that.
1: Another interesting thing you mentioned is how some of the biggest asset managers are really being the laggards in the the sustainable investing space. And last week, I reviewed a fund from Fidelity International, which had scored low on the the Morningstar ESG commitment level. And this put them in the the lowest rating category you can be. And then looking into this further, the, the asset management head of ESG at Fidelity gave a statement saying that the rating did not adequately reflect the firm's long-term commitments to ESG investing. So I want to ask you, how do you react when other sustainability professionals criticize the work that you do or or that other people at Morningstar do?
3: So you have to, and and actually your question Ben reminds me that I didn't get to the second part of Z's question, which was how do you detect greenwashing? So you know and and i wanted to mention morningstar's new esg commitment level rating which is it you know a rating that applies at both the strategy which is the fund or group of funds level as well as at the asset manager level and so i think the that statement was with with respect to a, a strategy but the the methodology has been published it's a transparent methodology and and the 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 observations are comprehensive and they they're an aggregation of our collective knowledge about ESG, which is substantial, you know, so of course we have different perspectives and, and that's fine, you know, we, we don't mind disagreeing with the folks that are, are being rated, no problem, but this is our methodology and we stick by it and we feel that it it really does reflect you know if you look at the spectrum of what investors are doing it it reflects that spectrum there are investors that are doing an excellent job of integrating esg into their strategies and into their asset manager level intentionality and we want to give credit to those so if we if we scored everybody equally high we wouldn't be giving credit to those that are really out in front in the race and it's a bit of a race because asset managers are really looking to differentiate themselves you know so It's one of the, whereas five years ago, it was a little, it was an add-on, you know, if you were, if you had an ESG strategy, it was something that, you know, you offered kind of as an add-on and, 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 you know, your stewardship on ESG was, was, you know, a, a little extra that you offered your investors. Now it's really a core offering. It's a core part of your offering. And for some asset managers, it's becoming who you are, you know, like we are an ESG investor so yeah i would say getting back to greenwashing you need to be you need to be looking for clear indications it's a commitment of resources it's the philosophy behind your investments it's the intentionality behind your stewardship and your active ownership but you know taking taking everything together i think there's a real spectrum of what investors are doing and, and when we line everybody up we want to reflect who's doing the best job and and you know we don't so, yeah, there we go. As far as greenwashing, I'd say you really need to go in and, you, I, you know, I would say looking at disclosures, you know, like voice, I share a commitment to transparency and and I feel transparency is the best indicator of an investor or a company is really committed to a sustainable business strategy or a sustainable investing strategy.
1: Thank you very much for, for speaking about that and touching on the idea that these asset managers really want to be able to promote to the kind of the wider world and their, their clients that they are kind of at the top of the sustainable investing um, space. So do, do you think that kind of the the positive ratings that kind of someone like, like us at Voice would give produces more impact or would you say it's kind of the, the promoting the... The companies that are doing the best which one do you think produces the more impact the bad reviews or the good reviews
3: good question so it comes down to whether you see sustainability as a risk versus a business opportunity you know and i I think there is this there's two ways of viewing sustainable business and sustainable investing is it about avoiding risk or is it about looking for alpha i really i feel it's both definitely it's both i come from the risk background because i think the the case that investors have been making for the longest time is you know climate is a risk and if you know and if we don't address this risk in the in the financial system you know we're looking at systemic risk that could potentially you know bring down a financial system so but at the same time there are business opportunities in sustainability and so especially for small businesses offering sustainable solutions i think For instance, what Voice is doing, going deep into products and looking at the product from different angles, looking at the sustainability of the product from different angles, this gives small businesses with new and innovative products the opportunity to showcase what they've got against, you know, some of the bigger brands that we know and that, you know, will be on the shelves. So I think this is a real opportunity for smaller businesses to offer, you know, to to innovate, you know innovate i mean across the board to innovate in packaging to innovate in sourcing to innovate in the ingredients in products to innovate in terms of the the com- community impact but to to showcase what the product brings to society and this is actually i mean it also gets to how we view business in society you know for the longest time certainly when i was studying business at oxford biz- business didn't view itself as having a social purpose business viewed itself as serving shareholders And to the extent that it was able to externalize environmental costs, social costs, whatever, within the bounds of the law, that was fine as long as you were serving shareholders. And some of the older governance structures were really designed to serve this purpose, to make sure that shareholders were best served by what management did and that management didn't veer too much off the rails, you know, with with the cash that really belonged to shareholders. Whereas now we're moving more to a time when we're thinking about what is the role of the business of the corporation in society, and should a corporation be allowed to exist if it creates environmental or social harms? You know, so how do we weigh up these harms versus the, the benefits? And this is really where we get to the stakeholder model of, of governance and of capitalism as well. You know, so we're moving away from that shareholder primacy model, and we need a new set of governance tools. We need a new we need new legal structures, even. You know, for instance, consider the B Corp. You know, the the B Corp structure is a structure that's designed to serve the stakeholder model of it or to allow companies to serve the stakeholder model of, of business. So, you know, I think the getting, so rewinding all the way to your question about, you know, whether, whether the public is best served by a low rating on a, on a product or a high rating on a product, I'd say it's the spectrum, you know, and, and we're looking at risk and we're looking at opportunity as well.
2: Thank you so much. I think that was such an important distinction. And realizing that, in a sense, these reviews, good or bad, depending on the spectrum, are a call to action. And it's going to be interesting looking futuristically how business models are going to adapt and who, you know, people who move away from the idea of shareholder primacy, how in the long run does that end up generating more returns because consumer preferences and just the business environment is a changing landscape towards sustainability. So thank you. Uh, We appreciate that.
3: So I just want to pick up on your, you know, when you say returns, and that's really when we think about returns, you know, I think we, we, when we think about the role of business in society and returns, it's a good term to use, you know, it, we're, we're now starting to look at returns in terms of not just shareholder returns, but returns in terms of, you know, we can think about regenerative economy, you know, so the, are we actually able to contribute to, uh, you know, are, is, the, is the business able to contribute to, to social and environmental um, factors. So not it's not just extractive, it's not even neutral, it's actually regenerative. So we've got a new set of language now to think about the terms, c- circular economy, regenerative economy. So sorry, I just wanted to, while, while that was fresh in my head, I just wanted to interrupt.
2: Thank you so much uh, for sharing that. <laughs> and while we were on the topic of active portfolio managers and looking into the power for them to to portray activism in terms of the companies that they are investing in. We got a question from the audience. It's from Eric Weinstein, and his question reads... To what extent is an active portfolio manager involved in voting on these resolutions as opposed to the asset manager's back office voting pursuant to a policy framework or a per proxy advisor recommendation? Right. So that,
3: that's really that's a great question about you know, how the vote is managed within different asset management groups. So the, the answer to that question would actually be different depending on which asset manager you're looking at. So asset managers administer and organize the vote in different ways. We've got some asset managers where the vote is, you know, and and I, I look at the votes, I look at all of the funds, say, offered by an asset manager, let's say State Street, and I look at their votes, and I look at their votes on the same resolution and what i see within some asset managers is that there can be some inconsistency which indicates that portfolio managers have more of a control of the votes than you know than the than, than central stewardship committee and then at other asset managers and state street's a good example where we have perfect consistency of the vote across funds so you know these different within different asset managers that the voting is organized more or less centrally in some cases like in vesco there's a central platform so The asset manager has has a platform on which all fund managers are able to contribute their views on various resolutions. And it's kind of a crowdsourced way of coming up with a house view, but that house view doesn't always prevail. So it's still up to the fund manager, whether they want to vote, vote according to their own judgment. Now, the, and this really, the, you know, if the distinction between passive investing and an actively managed fund is quite crucial here because an active manager, an active fund manager will, will almost, by definition, have more of an opinion about how to vote the proxies for the companies in, in his or her portfolio than would a, his or her or they, sorry, portfolio than would a passive investor. So passive asset managers generally are more, you know, they're very, the so the fees are very low, the fund fees are very low. And so it helps to scale some of the some of the resource intensive activities, like deciding on proxy voting. So, for every fund manager to do the research necessary, you know, particularly if you're the if you're managing the S and P 500 index fund, really, there's you may as well go with a house view. So, passive investing lends itself to a more centralized voting administration, whereas active active fund management lends itself to more more independence of the. Portfolio management, which is not to say portfolio managers, which is not to say that you know, like a, a fund shop like T Rowe, which offers a lot of actively managed funds, still has a central stewardship committee and still researches proxy voting centrally and supports a central kind of voting function. And then the other question in this, or the other part of this question, is to what extent are asset managers relying on proxy advisors' vote recommendations? And so, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, so this was really an important issue in 2020 because the SEC took their took steps to further regulate the proxy advisory industry and to make it a little more difficult to offer independent proxy advice, in my opinion. And one of the motivations that the SEC used for 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 the, these new rules was that too many investors are relying automatically on proxy advisors recommendations in my experience that's not the case in my experience proxy advisors serve a really useful function they you know there's a lot of there are a lot of ballot items that come to vote in say a proxy season north american proxy season goes from april to june you can end up with thirty-five thousand votes across the russell 3000 you know just to take and, and many asset managers have many more investee companies across the portfolio holdings it helps to have a service that sifts through routine ballot items. It really does. Many, and so many asset managers will use proxy advisory services and then, and then have flag important categories of resolutions that they want to take specific notice of or flag companies where they want to take more of an active voting approach. So it, it's, it's always, you know, it differs from asset manager to asset manager. And, but I think there's an important role for proxy advisors. There's an important role for. For, for different levels of centralization of the voting function.
2: Thank you so much. That was very educational and I think useful. And I, as you did walk through the different, I guess, levels of stakeholders or manager within a fund, flipping the conversation back to shareholders and looking back futuristically on shareholder privacy and the increased demand or incorporation sustainability, you should shareholders expect lower returns and perhaps look at... Value in other terms, as you did mention, the regenerative economy, circular economy, and maybe can you elaborate further on other types of returns that aren't necessarily financial that shareholders may be expecting?
3: So one of the one of the what's weird, ways of looking at return is in terms of the horizon. You know how what is, what is the horizon over which you're measuring returns? And typically within the financial industry, you know it's three or five years, and that's not long enough for some of these systemic risks to manifest within portfolios. And you, when you, you know, your generation will be go, moving into the workforce in the next couple of years, you will be, you will want whoever represents you, your investment fiduciary to take a 40, 45 year time horizon on your on re- returns, you know, because you're not gonna be drawing on your retirement savings for the next 40 to 45 years. So, and that's a long enough time for some of the worst effects of climate change to have come to pass or for some of the, you know, some of the impacts, the social dislocation impacts of systemic racism or human rights impacts in different parts of the world. So this is long enough for those impacts to have a material financial impact on your retirement savings. So I think it really comes down to What is the horizon over which you're measuring returns? So when you're measuring your horizon over you know full career of retirement savings, you're actually talking about you're gonna be getting more out of your retirement savings by thinking about thinking by investing in businesses that support a regenerative or circular economy.
2: Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much, Yvonne Spinoza, for sharing this question. She's the co-founder of Voice and has been an incredible leader and uh, great in cultivating this community. So thank you.
1: Thank you as well. And I think the um, final question put towards you is from your perspective, how do you see the mission at Voice to influence companies to adopt better ESG practices that align with consumer concerns, link in with the wider world of sustainability? And do you have any advice on to how we could expand or enrich our impact?
3: Can you, I want, I want to make sure that I do justice to your question. So if you don't mind reiterating it for me so that I and I'm just going to make sure that I touch on all aspects of your question.
1: Yes. So it's because voice is the connection between the, the products that are produced by mm-hmm. these companies and the consumers rather than where kind of where your experiences have been within pushing the, the fund managers I just kind of would would like to hear your opinion on how giving more transparency to consumers will help sustainability and help push companies.
3: Right. So consumers are a very important stakeholder group. And in fact, when you think about stakeholder groups, you know we're each one of us. We're a consumer. When you you know we're as an employee, you are an employee. You're an investor. You know. So the idea of stakeholder groups being distinct. You know, that's a bit. It's a bit procrastinating we're actually you know we're, we hold we're, we're multiple stakeholders and so i think raising consumer awareness means raising um, the awareness of other stakeholder groups employees and i'll give you an example amazon employees filed a shareholder resolution in 2019 asking the company to do more to address climate risks that face that the company faces and that the company is contributing to so employees putting on their shareholder hat to push the company that they work for to do better likewise consumer groups pressuring and here's another example the the government contractor geo group that that runs detention centers in the US you'd think a government contractor is pretty immune to consumer pressure well it turns out that they're not immune to their banks putting pressure on them. And their banks only put pressure on them because consumers at the banks came and said, or bank clients came and said, we're not going to bank with you unless you stop funding detention, these private detention center providers. So, and the provider of beds, uh, the, the provider of the beds for the detention centers, a Geo Group and Wayfair, their employees walked out in a show of solidarity with the immigrant detainees who were being abused in some of the detention centers. So these are really good examples of where stakeholders put on different hats and and create the pressure for change. So by focusing on consumers, I think you're focusing on more than consumers. You're not just focusing on consumers, but making people aware or making society aware of the power of consumption, both in supporting the status quo or pressuring for change, I think is very powerful. And you start at the unit, what is the unit of consumption, the product, you know? So you start with the product and you look at the product from all angles and it's not, perhaps it's better than any one product. It's more about helping consumers think critically about what they buy and how they spend their dollars. So there's the information that's being conveyed, but there's also, you know, how do consumers think critically about their role and the power that they have in the dollars that they spend. So I think part of your question was how can, how can voice expand its reach and its influence in supporting, you know, this transition to stakeholder capitalism? You know, I think the, the strategy of reaching out to students and the strategy of, of collectivizing students' opinions is super powerful because really you are the, the you, I mean, you are already consumers, but your consumption power will grow over the next Well, over the course of your careers and not just that you will be growing with a set of values that you've started cultivating in this work that you're doing as you. As you focus in on on the social aspects social and environmental aspects of these products, so I think that's very powerful it's it's
1: a very powerful. Um, model for change so i hope that answers the question that answered it answered incredibly well and just want to thank you as well for for all the questions you've answered today and it's been really really interesting to to hear you speak about all your experiences and opinions it's
3: been my pleasure thank you thank you for listening jackie
0: i just want to thank you personally for coming on it was fascinating discussion i think that uh, just a couple things you said towards the end about critical thinking and and also being advocates today, but decision makers tomorrow. I think that those are two aspects of voice that, that I think are really present and that there's just so much critical thinking going on about what really is happening and what should be happening. And then that's going to be taken today. It's, it's a voice of people that want change, but it's also going to be the, the decision makers that are eventually going to be, you know, in those conference rooms, deciding over yeah. products and things like that. So I think hearing you talk, there's, there's a lot of potential Ahead, and I, I really appreciate uh, you coming on board. And, and Ben and Z, you did an excellent job, and uh, so and Thank you, and Emily, for organizing.
3: Yeah, so I will second that, Ben and Z, and Emily. Really, thank you very much for organizing this and for putting together such a a well structured set of questions. You really did kind of draw out some some of the important aspects. I think I hadn't made some of the connections that your your
2: questions drew out.
0: Great. Great. Well, it's my role to end it here because we're coming on the hour. I wish we could go on longer, but Jackie, thanks again. And everybody have a great Saturday.
2: Bye. Thank you. Thank you, Jackie. It was an honor uh, to have you. Okay, Jane. Bye-bye.